Thanks for leading us, Melanie. Uh, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And this morning we're going to be continuing in our series from the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph. But I'm going to begin by showing you a quick clip of the comic Sinbad. And in this, this uh, comedy sketch, he's talking about the issues that parents have when their children become adults. So just give a quick listen to this. It's a great sketch. And one of the things that, that just struck me as I was watching it for the first time was how reminiscent it was of my life when I was just becoming an adult. At 21, just graduated from college, I'd spent a month uh, at the, after right, my graduation substitute teaching in the uh, classroom that I had student taught in. And it was probably the hardest four weeks of my life. Really, really tough. <laughs> and uh, the last day of school, my car was packed and I headed for home down to Connecticut. Uh, because you know what? It is tough out there. <laughs> He's not kidding. A lot of kids spend their time dreaming about the time when they'll be able to leave the house and go off on their own, because then life will be, get, be better. And we kind of keep thinking that way as we go through life. We say, okay, so once we land a career job, if I can just get a job in my career, then I'll be good. Everything will be good. Or maybe it's when I get married or when we have children. We'll settle down, and then life will be good. In my generation, what we look forward to is the empty nest and retirement. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with looking forward to any of those things. But we are delusional if we think that any stage of our lives is going to be without issues. It's just not going to happen. There's always something to drag us down. Life is never easy. And sometimes that disappointment makes us feel like life is kind of meaningless. In our scripture portion today, we're going to be looking at the, actually, take a little break from Joseph, kind of, and we're going to be looking, focusing on his father, Jacob. And we're going to see this very thing, this disillusionment, disappointment, played out at the end of jo Jacob's life. Jacob is Joseph's aging father. The golden years that he had anticipated weren't working out like he hoped. Everything about his life seemed like it was hard. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 46. There was a terrible famine in the land, and the family was in dire straits. Jacob's sons had just returned from Egypt with big news. Joseph was alive. They carried an invitation from Joseph and the Pharaoh, pick up everything you have and, and your family and move the whole lock, stock and barrel down to Egypt, which at that time was the land of plenty. So let's take a look at the beginning of this passage. <clears throat> So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob 
and all his descendants with him, his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful example of your faithfulness, even in our old age. And we just ask God that you would use the words from your scripture to pierce our hearts and to penetrate our minds so that we might be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So Jacob clearly had some anxiety about leaving Egypt, uh, excuse me, leaving Canaan. And I know this because he says, God says, do not be afraid, which means he was. <laughs> so what was the problem? We had misgivings about leaving the land. And a look at his family history tells us why. First off, his grandfather Abraham had trouble when he left the land and went to Egypt without God's instruction. His father Isaac was forbidden to leave. As a matter of fact, I have the, the thing, exact thing he told Isaac. Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Well, that was Jacob's father that got told that. And he had gotten rich, Isaac had, after obeying God's limits. The land was promised to the family and it meant interaction and protection by God to be there. And Jacob himself had lived in exile out of the land for many years <clears throat> and probably had promised himself when he got home that he was never going to do that again. The family attached great importance to the land. Jacob started in Hebron. Oh, I'm sorry. And up until now, they were nomads, and God had promised this land was for them. Would he be forfeiting the promise by leaving it? So I'm going to give you a little map here of Canaan at the time of Jacob. And um, you can see there's the Dead Sea, and then up above it, with the, attached by the Jordan River, is the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jacob started off in Hebron, which is about across from where the Dead Sea is, from north to south. It's about halfway down the Dead Sea. And he traveled down south, down to Beersheba. And Beersheba was kind of like at the, the border of where the land that God had promised. So he is about to leave the land. And he's right there at the border. And if you remember, last time he was at the border of the land was way north when he was leaving to go into exile because of his murderous brother. And in that time, he had a dream that night. And in his dream, there was a ladder with angels going up and down. And God stood at the top of the ladder. And this is what God said. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring, back you, bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And he also told him, I'll give this land to you and your descendants, and they'll be like dust of the earth spread out to the west. In you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he had heard from God. This isn't the only time. So he, now he's in Beersheba, just about to cross over into not the promised land, on his way to Egypt. And he stops, and he builds an altar. Beersheba's the town that he was raised in, where he spent a lot of his life. And he's looking for God to speak to him. And God does. And this is what he says. Do not be afraid 
to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I'll also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. So you can see, with all the repetition between those two times where God talked to him, okay, he says uh, those, several things. I'll keep you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bring you back to this land. I'll bring you up again. And I will not leave you. I will go down with you. And so God is promising the same thing again that he did the last time Jacob was leaving the land. But we do have to kind of to, to figure out here, what do we have to, we have to stop and wonder for a minute and say, why is God doing that? Why is he bringing down to Egypt? What's the deal with that? Well, there's a bunch of different reasons why God would bring the clan down to Goshen. First of all, it was always in the plan. Remember, the promise made back to Abraham in, verse, uh, in chapter 15 of Genesis goes like this. He told him this. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God had already told what was going to happen with the family. And you better believe that that promise, those things, got passed down from generation to generation, as they surely would have. And so they were supposed to somehow be brought into this foreign land, he doesn't tell what, that they would stay there for 400 years, and then after they became a nation, God would pick them up and move them back onto the promised land. So they knew all that stuff. Secondly, why God brought them down is he was setting them apart. He was calling them away from a land with horrible pagan practices, idol worship, which were seductive, and they would have been sucked right in. And God wanted to protect them from that. Because even after they became millions strong and were on their way to the promised land, those 400 years later, God knew that they needed to oust the people that were living there at the time. And this is what he says. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare to you. So God was setting them apart. There was a lot of sexual activity in their worship. The cultic prostitution was all about fertility and encouraging their gods to keep the land and people fertile. There was witchcraft. There were seers. There were sorcerers who could, in God's words, bring up the dead. Exciting, powerful things that would quickly turn their heads away from God. So God warned them again, just as they are about to enter the land 40 years later in Deuteronomy. He said, You shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord God will drive them out before you. So he was going according to plan, setting Israel and his family apart. And the third reason we can find is in our next part of our passage when we arrived there. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. 
As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face, that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and we will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to Egyptians. God uh, had promised to give Joseph, uh, promised Joseph, excuse me, Pharaoh had promised Joseph to give Goshen to he and his brothers. And he said, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. So they were there in a wonderful place, plentiful, good place to settle in. And here's the key. Since the Egyptians detested shepherds, they would live there pretty much isolated and away from the Egyptian culture. God was giving them a chance to develop into a people out of a family, into a great nation that was going to be used by God. And multiply they did. Seventy people arrived in Goshen that day. And when they left, 400 years later, they were numbered in three million. So they multiplied. And they were, they were the descendants of Jacob. They were still pure in race and had enough numbers to invade and then inhabit the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them. So after their arrival, Joseph takes five of his brothers and his father to meet the king of the Egyptian empire. This is big stuff here. And after a short conversation, Joseph presents his father. He brings him before Pharaoh, and this is what happens. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Joseph said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So there's a couple of interesting details on this part of the story. First of all, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now, it's the lord of the Egyptian empire and the father of the promise. Pharaoh has land, Jacob does not. But he believes in the promises of God beyond any Egyptian reality. But the meeting begins and ends with Israel blessing Egypt. Earlier we were told that J Joseph was the conduit of blessing on Potiphar's house. It said, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. So the uh, pharaohs themselves were considered divine. So why would he accept a blessing from Jacob? Well, you've got to remember, Pharaoh was in awe of the special wisdom and foresight that Joseph had shown. And he knew that he was from God. He said to himself, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So he may well have wondered about the family in which Joseph grew up. 
And now here's the father, the patriarch, and he wants to know about him because he's very curious. So he asks him how old you are. Now that may seem like kind of an embarrassing question to some people, but that back then age was considered something to respect, and if you had longevity in age, it was considered as a divine blessing. So Pharaoh asked Jacob how old he is. And he's impressed, no doubt, by how old Jacob is. 110 was considered an extremely blessed old age for the Egyptians. And it probably increased the mystique about the family for Pharaoh. So what did Jacob give as his blessing? Well, early in his life, he had received a blessing from his father, Isaac. Now, and this is what he, the Isaac said. Now, may God give you the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wind. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your blessing, excuse me, may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who curse you. That's what Isaac said to Jacob. That's the blessing he had personally received. So whatever the blessing to Pharaoh looked like, probably looked something like that. We don't know though because the Bible doesn't tell us what he said, only that he blessed him. And here we're seeing Jacob fulfilling this divinely appointed role that nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, just like God had promised. The other thing we need to note is how Jacob summarized his life. The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Kind of sad. It sounds a little bit like Eeyore, doesn't he? A glass half-empty kind of guy. It's definitely a statement that reveals how he felt at the time and how he characterized in his mind his life as a whole. So what is that unpleasantness to which he refers? Well, there was a lot of difficulty in Jacob's life. First off, he had to leave his homeland to escape Esau and go into exile. While he was gone, he, he was married off to the wrong bride and had to work an additional seven years. He worked many years for this cheating, deceptive uncle who tried to get everything out of him he could. There were horrible family dynamics that we've talked about before, about all of these wives having children to try to one-up each other. And then, of course, his grief for Joseph's demise, which he was told by his brothers that he was dead. And grief, that's a bad one. And then, now he had just gone through a famine that threatened to destroy his whole family. So there were a lot of hard things about Jacob's life. So we can kind of understand that. But there were also some blessings. First of all, he had 12 sons. That was a huge blessing. And daughters, 70 in all. And there's a whole, whole uh, list of who went to Egypt in the chapter. He had prosperity. He had wealth in these large flocks. Um, and those flocks were created by God the speckled, not speckled, black, white. He had this whole deal going with Laban, but God made his flocks prosper. And he ended up with these huge herds. Um, and it was God that did it, and he knew it. Um, then he found out that Joseph was alive. That was good. <laughs> and he was given a place to live out his years, Goshen, in plenty, in peace. And he doesn't know it yet, but God is about to grant him an additional 17 more years to spend with Joseph. So the one thing he does mention is the years of my sojourning. Because God has yet to 
give the promise, the promise of the land to him. So he has spent his wife squatting on lands that other people own. But Jacob still believed in the promise. And we know that from this next portion. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So Joseph promised. And he said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore it. Jacob knew he was never going to return. He will never be in the promised land. He, was, he knew future generations would be, though, from what God had already promised. So he wanted to be buried in the land that, would give the fourth, uh, that God would give the fourth generation of their family, the land that God had promised to Abraham. And that land would be named for him, Israel. When he was on his deathbed, he still had not given up on God. This is what Hebrews 11 tells us. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. That's a picture, isn't it? So what now? What does this passage have to do for me and you today? Well, God had given Jacob, a much to Jacob, by the time he stood in front of Pharaoh. He'd given him a lot of children and grandchildren. He'd blessed them with these vast herds, with material blessing. He was a rich man. But the greatest blessing remained out of reach for him, even in his old age. The land. This morning we sang, the Lord has promised good to me. And there is good in this life. There's plenty of it. There's never a day which we can't sit and remember all of God's wonderful gifts to us. Things that can't ever be taken away from us. Things like the security of knowing we're saved and we never have to worry about our future that we never have to pay for our sin, knowing that we're in this relationship of peace with God of the universe. We're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And we enjoy a lot of benefits from that relationship. This is what David said about our life here and now. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So God does demonstrate his goodness to us throughout our lives. We, uh, but even in that goodness, there's a lot more to come in the next life. We're one day going to share in the inheritance and the glory that is Jesus Christ. Our transformation will finally be complete. And no longer will we have to struggle with our sin nature and temptation. Because it's not going to be a part of who we are anymore. We're going to be face to face with God the God of the universe. We're going to be in the presence of his glory. No more shame. No more struggle. We will be whole. So we have parts of our salvation already, and we also look forward to what hasn't happened yet. Already? Not yet. And how can we be so sure that we are going to receive the rest, the yet part? Because God has promised us in his word. Jacob knew the not yet. He lived for what was to come. His faith in the God faithful to his promises did not waver. There's no evidence that his faith in God wavered. Hebrews tells us about all the patriarchs who trusted in a God who fulfills what he promises. And this is what it says. By faith, 
Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham never got to see the promise of the land fulfilled in their lifetimes, and they knew they wouldn't because God told Abraham what was going to happen for the next 400 years, that the family would stay in a foreign land 400 years before his descendants would be given the promised land. But it still was the thing that Jacob yearned for with all his heart. But even in light of the fact he wouldn't see the land again, he would never see his great-great-grandchildren take possession of the land, he still worshipped God with his dying breath. Why? Because as much as he loved the promise, he loved the promise maker more. He loved the God who had never left his side in his journey to Iran as he ran from his murderous brother. He loved the God who miraculously had the speckled and spotted sheep and goats multiply into strong and large herds. He loved the God who had wrestled with him by the river and changed his name to Israel before he re-entered the land to reflect one who has seen God face to face. Jacob loved God, and he trusted in who he was and in his faithfulness that he would do what he said he was going to do. We can worship God for what he's given us already, but we live out our earthly existence in a world marked with sin and trouble. We can get discouraged by it all, just like Jacob was the day he stood before Pharaoh. We struggle, sometimes mightily struggle, with difficulty. We grieve terrible losses. Sometimes it's really hard to perceive him at all or to even hold on to hope. You know, King Solomon, who experienced huge blessings from God, great riches and ruling with world renown, um, ruling has, in his wisdom gave voice to the seeming meaninglessness of the earth. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes within the context of a kingdom that was wealthier than it had ever been. Peace reigned in the land. Kingdoms far and wide had heard of his great wisdom. By all counts, from the outside looking in, Solomon had everything a king could desire. Yet at first glance, this is what he says in the very beginning of this book. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Then he goes on to talk about his works, his accomplishments, meaningless. Things of pleasure that he pursued, meaningless. Everything was vanity and futility. And Ecclesiastes is thought to be written, reflection composed in Solomon's declining years, revealing an old man's regret and sorrow. Sounds a lot like Jacob, doesn't it? But the book doesn't end there. Solomon then asks a key question in chapter uh, 2. He says, um, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? There's your meaning. He goes on to say, well, everything has, on earth has its season, 
God is in control. Man was created with eternity in his heart. Um, and that is the ability to envision what lies beyond. The meaning he's searching for lies beyond earthly pleasure and reward. When we're in the depths of despair and we can't see the light at the end of it all, we can still worship God for the not yet. What he has promised that's still to come because he has created us with the ability to envision beyond the here and now. We can see see the goodness of the Lord beyond the land of the living. You know, I had to laugh, Bill, when you brought up the uh, wax on, wax off, because that's my final illustration. <laughs> you probably remember the 80s movie Karate Kid, right? In order to teach his protege, Mr. Miyagi gives Daniel several days of meaningless, horrible work. Wax on, wax off, right? And after a couple of days of this, Daniel gets discouraged, and he's, he's had enough. He tells him, you're using me as slave labor. I'm out of here. And Mr. Miyagi stops him. And then, in this really wonderful scene, which I don't have time to show you, as, as he, he gets Daniel to do those moves again, and he starts trying to give him blows. And as Daniel instinctively does these moves, he's blocking every blow that Mr. Miyagi is giving him. So what had seemed unimportant, as he did over and over, had trained his muscles to instinctively react when under attack. You know, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon advises us to do much the same exercise and training. This is what he cautions us. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. And before the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Determining to love and trust God right now is the key to be able to face any future disillusion or disappointment with hope. The more we deepen our knowledge of him and understand what is yet to come, the better we train our minds and hearts to have hope in him as our instinctive reaction to the heart. And when we know God and love him, we equip ourselves to trust in spite of whatever lies ahead. Going deeper in our love for him and our understanding should be our number one priority right now. And Lord willing, someday we will be like Jacob, leaning on our staff and worshiping God to the very end.